from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today's subject is the issue of psychedelics and the law, specifically psychedelics and intellectual property law, the issue of patents. His name is Graham Pechenik. He's an attorney in San Francisco. He founded a law firm about six years ago called Calix Law, C-A-L-Y-X. But he's been working in the area of patent law now for a couple of decades in a whole range of industries, the marijuana industry. Uh, So, Graham, thanks so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Thank you so much, Ethan, for the honor of being here. It's it's really a joy to be able to participate in your podcast, which I've enjoyed for so long. I, Grim, I want to start off by sort of placing the issue of psychedelic patents law at the intersection of two things. One, the broader issue of patent law, which we'll get into broadly, because obviously, in many respects, the issues that are emerging in psychedelics patent law are just emblematic of the broader issues and challenges and problems in broader patent law. But it's also 
at the intersection of patent law and of psychedelic law. And there's now a psychedelic law association. I think they just recently had one of their first meetings in September. And so apart from patent law, what are the other issues in psychedelics law? I mean, I go back to thinking about those initial religious freedom cases involving the uh, the churches that were using ayahuasca, the UDV and the Santo Dime. But apart from that religious piece and the area you're working on, especially now, what else lies in that field of psychedelics law? Well, that's a good question. And so I say there is the Psychedelic Bar Association, which did just have its first psychedelic law summit, which had over three dozen lawyers who have an interest or some bit of a practice in psychedelics. And there is also actually where I am, a, a California Psychedelics Bar Association founded by two psychedelics general counsel at two companies. In terms of the amount of work actually that people can do in terms of a focus, I think you're right to call out the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and work around there, because for many years, that I think was the predominant area where if someone who was interested in psychedelics law, they could work in. And I think up until really, I've had the the great fortune of having this niche in psychedelics patents, there there haven't been all that many, and certainly not ones where one could make an entire practice or entire focus of a career on on psychedelics. And actually, there's an article that just came out recently by Matt Zorn, who I worked together with on a challenge against the DEA. The challenge against the DEA was one way we could get involved as lawyers who were interested in, in psychedelics. So the DEA had proposed to schedule five psychedelic tryptamines. And because Matt is a really good DEA lawyer and I had an interest in psychedelics, we, we joined forces along with some others to challenge that. I actually was reading that article that you mentioned, Graham, uh, by Matt, uh, just last night in prepping for our discussion, where he talks about the case about the DEA. I mean, we've so long seen the DEA as the bad guys, you know, trying to throw things into Schedule 1 without any proper, you know, due process or hearings. But this more recent case where the DEA targeted these five tryptamines, a certain class of psychedelics, and said they want to put it right into Schedule 1. And I remember Hamilton Morris, you know, who was one of my guests on Psychoactive, sounding the alarm. He emailed me, lots of other people, got a lot of people mobilized. And then I think Matt played a key role with assistance from you in challenging this and ultimately beating back the DEA uh, and forcing them not to throw these things into Schedule 1. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners two things. One, what was special about that fight? And secondly, do you think it's going to have broader implications in terms of how the DEA views other psychedelic substances in the future? Sure. And so to your first question, what do I think perhaps was, was special about that? I think what was special really was the just artillery, so to speak, or the you know the amount of work that Matt in particular brought to bear to this challenge. And so Hamilton Morris, as you mentioned, was involved. Uh, there was another company, a Panacea Plant Sciences, and, and their CEO was very interested in this and, and spent a lot of effort even before this had filed against uh, the DEA. And then we had declarations from uh, from many experts on. The, really everything from the fact that these particular compounds were not ones that had any uh, evidence of abuse and didn't pose any threat of uh, safety issues or any risks. And the DEA's evidence that they had was over a decade old from a report from around 2010, um, long before this 
the current wave of psychedelic research and the psychedelic renaissance. But Graham, why why were they even bothering to try to throw these five substances in? I mean, was there was there any evidence that they were being misused in the broader public? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And it's not really something that we were able to very easily figure out. I mean, the, the reason they had this 10-year-old report was because back in the aughts, there was something called Operation Reb Trip, where the DEA went after the vendors of research chemicals of different tryptamines. And, and it looked like, although they had went back then to go after some of the ones that had broader use, these sort of were left out because they didn't really have that many reports of use. And the only deaths that were on record were polydrug abuse and involving other things. But that, I think, still kind of remains a mystery what actually uh, initiated this at the beginning of the year. So in terms of you're able to beat them back, do you think it's going to impact how the DEA operates in the future on other novel compounds, especially psychedelic compounds? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really a big open question. And so the sort of first way we thought about trying to see if there would be any evidence of an answer was with the second challenge that there was to the DEA. So just after the DEA proposed to schedule these five psychedelic tryptamines, the DEA also proposed to schedule two psychedelic phenethylamines, DOI and DOC, both similarly to the five tryptamines had, had very little evidence of abuse, almost none. DOI, however, is something that's in hundreds, if not thousands of publications as a, a standard in research because it's such a good serotonin receptor agonist. And because it is unscheduled, it's, it's very easy to work with. And so we were looking out to see if the DEA's proposal there would, would go forward. And actually, they withdrew that one as well. So it looks like maybe mm. with psychedelics, there might be some leniency. But I think with both, they basically didn't say they're they're done entirely, but just that they're going back to the drawing board. So just briefly explain to the audience the difference between the two categories of substances. Yeah. So the, the difference between the two categories is based on the chemical structure, the chemical backbone or scaffold is some as some call it. And, and tryptamines have a chemical backbone that's the same as serotonin. So serotonin actually is 4-hydroxytryptamine. And so, you know, we think of a lot of psychedelics we know with perhaps tryptamine in the name. So dimethyltryptamine or 5-methoxytryptamine. Um, and, and so these are all tryptamines. LSD, for instance, is generally classed or can be as a, a tryptamine. It has a more complex structure. Um, even ibogaine has a tryptamine or indole core as part of it. Phenethylamines are compounds that are like mescaline or, or MDMA or have a uh, scaffold that's like an, an amphetamine. Um, and amphetamine mm -hmm. actually stands for an alpha-methylphenethylamine. So these all have this phenethylamine core, which is more like the dopamine neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. So now let's just put this into a kind of a little bit of historical context with a, with a couple of the most famous names in psychedelics creation, right? The first one is... Albert Hoffman, who was working at Sandoz and sort of discovered or devised, however you want to put it, LSD during World War II years. So Hoffman and Sandoz did patent those things back then, right? Those were among the few patents in this area for many decades. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So after Albert Hoffman received samples of psilocybin mushrooms, actually from Gordon Wasson, from the, the same area where Gordon Wasson went and, and had his the first time. Um, Albert Hoffman and, and Sandoz filed patent applications on the 
the isolation of psilocybin and, and also its use as a, a tranquilizer, actually. But were there many, many more psychedelic patents back then, or were these really sort of standing alone for some decades? These were standing alone. And many people, of course, will know, and with PCAL and TCAL, that there were hundreds just in those books that were developed by, by Sasha Shulgin. Well, I mean, you're jumping to my next question here, which is, did Sasha Shulgin ever seek or get a patent for any of his creations? Or do you know, did he deliberately choose not to? Because those two books, Pecal and Tecal, which are essentially recipe books for hundreds of these substances, put it out into the public domain. And I guess that presumably means they can't be patented in the future, at least with the ways that he used to uh, synthesize them. But what do you know about Sasha's history vis-a-vis patent? Was he... Ever, ever seeking in that area, or did he deliberately abstain from seeking that? Yeah, that? That's a good question. And actually, interestingly, part of the reason I think Sasha was even able to do the amount of chemistry that he did relating to psychedelics was due to the fact that he had some very successful patents that he filed when he was working at Dow. And th- those patents earned so much money for the company that they gave him a little bit more free reign with his laboratory and, and allowed him to pursue some other interests. In terms of his interest, though, filing patent applications on his own, I think it's a little bit unsettled, but there's a great article by by Matt Baggett about this. And from what we know, he did actually file a patent application on one tryptamine. I think it's alpha-methyltryptamine because he saw a commercial market for it actually as a a stimulant, I think, for older people. So I, I don't know that he was constitutionally or sort of philosophically against patent applications or, or filing patents to protect work. I think perhaps he just didn't see that there was a commercial market for a uh-huh. psychedelic. Well, what about something like 2CB? I mean, that's you know widely regarded as one of his major you know concoctions. Um, but I presume there is no patent and presumably can be no patent on 2CB since it's been in the public record now? Correct. So, I mean, anything published in PCAL and TCAL, anything at all, that's the chemical structure itself disclosed to the public. That's something that can't be patented itself, the structure at least. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps we'll get into, but but of course, not to jump ahead, but you know there are patent applications filed on psychedelics, even known psychedelics. So the fact that just the chemical compound can't receive protection for it alone doesn't mean that it can't make part of a, a claim on something else that involves it. So a different method of synthesizing it might be able to get patent protection. Sure. A method of synthesizing it, maybe even a different form of it. So maybe now to jump ahead, but so there are some applications that are perhaps the most well-known in the space that cover psilocybin, some of the first to be published, some of the ones that have probably received the most conversation around them and controversy, and they cover psilocybin in a particular crystalline form. So it's not psilocybin, mm-hmm. just a chemical structure, but it's the way it is when it's part of a, for instance, a, you know, a drug product, when it's mixed with an excipient at a certain purity in a, in a particular crystalline structure, as somebody would receive it if they got it as a prescription medication. So, Graham, why don't we just go directly there then? So, I mean, the case that most people have heard of who follow this even tangentially is the case involving Compass, right? And Compass is, you know, one of the biggest and most prominent of the psychedelic companies. It was founded by the Goldsmiths, uh, George Goldsmith uh, and, and his wife. And he's taken, you know, a fair bit of flack 
Um, really, I guess, for two things. One is in seeking and successfully getting a patent for a particular formulation of psilocybin. And then secondly, for, you know, being highly ambitious, aggressive uh, in trying to get patents for all sorts of things associated with the administration um, of psilocybin to treat uh, uh, chronic depression and things like that. So maybe just explain to our listeners more about that controversy and its significance. Yeah. And so the controversy on the patents, I think, is difficult to view outside of all the ways that it is impacted by the broader controversies around Compass and Compass's investors like Peter Thiel and their long history. So I do think to some degree, the controversies on the patents are inflected with these broader controversies around how they moved from being a nonprofit to a for-profit, how they obtained information under the guise of what people say, saying they were at first a nonprofit and, and speaking with many academics who gave them information on, on friendly terms and then perhaps were tried to be held to non-disclosure agreements and how the company itself at one point allegedly tried to make it more difficult for its competitors to get access to synthetic psilocybin to do research and a number of other things I think that impact the, the, the patent controversies. The patent controversies themselves, there's really two types of patents that they've pursued. One have been primarily on this psilocybin crystalline form, this polymorph or polymorph A as it's described in their applications. And the other has been an application they filed that published as a PCT application that did contain all these aspects of the type of psychological support a patient would receive and even qualities of the room, the soft furniture, the high definition sound system. Um, but it did cover these interactions with a therapist like hand holding or the therapist putting their hand on the shoulder of the patient and things that seemed clearly to be part of what would expect perhaps in psilocybin therapy and, and part of what one would expect perhaps not to be things that could be protected by a patent in, in any event. I mean, it sounds like total chutzpah. I mean, the hand holding or soft furniture or their sound stuff, I mean, that's so inherent to the experience that wh why would they even think to include that stuff in the first place? Is it just a, a broader notion that when you're getting a patent, you sort of throw everything against the wall and see what sticks? Or or isn't there an element of embarrassment about going that far? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I am actually surprised, if anything, and I, and I don't know what was in Compass's minds when they filed this, so I can only sort of assume based on my sort of presumption of how most patent attorneys act. Uh, I would be surprised that they didn't spend the effort to cull through their patent a little bit or the, the claims to see what might raise these controversies. But it is fairly standard practice when filing a PCT application to include often several hundred claims. And there's no additional charges for those claims, like there is a national examination. And there's there's no real downside to including them. And so oftentimes, everything that's described in an application, to some degree, will make its way into a claim. And, and there may not be, in the end, any real desire to pursue those things. Perhaps the company wants to get a an opinion. So actually, as part of the PCT process, the applicant will get a preliminary opinion from a PCT examiner. You're using an acronym there. Was it PCT? Yeah. So PCT is 
a acronym that stands for the Patent Cooperation Treaty. So it's a treaty that has now 157, I think, members. It's basically a treaty that allows anybody to file a single application, that's the PCT application, and then have up to 30 months from the earliest filing date to decide whether to enter any of those 157 member states individually. And so the benefit of doing that is if you want to file in multiple applications, you know, that's going to take a lot of expense. You may have to translate your documents. You'll have to you know, pay lawyers to be your agent in each of those different jurisdictions. And so if you had to do that all at once, it would, have, it would be a lot of upfront costs, which mm-hmm. in the end, you may decide you don't even want to pursue it depending on how your drug development or your research is going. So this sort of provides an ability to file a single application get that preliminary opinion and hold off on some of those costs to see if down the road in in 30 months or however it takes, uh, whether it's even worth filing in those different jurisdictions. So are most patent applications in the U.S. simultaneously PCT applications, or do people make a judgment and does it only apply in a few cases? Sometimes people, if they want to accelerate their patent grant, they might file both in the U.S. and the PCT simultaneously, or sometimes Mm -hmm. they'll enter U.S. or another country early and not wait the full 30 months. It really depends on the technology. So you can imagine in a fast-moving technology like an invention that has to do with your smartphone, somebody might want to get that patent granted as quickly as possible because the value of that application and the value of that invention might not even exist five years from now. With something like drug discovery, you might not have a drug on the market for seven years or eight years or longer. And so you don't really need to worry about having something that you can hold against a potentially infringing competitor for, for much longer. Now, if it, if a company that did not have some of those negative associations you describe about Compass in terms of their investors, in terms of uh, you know having first been a nonprofit and taking advantage of that to give them an edge up as they became a for-profit company, would there have been as much controversy, you think, about them seeking and getting a patent for this other way of synthesizing psilocybin? I think there are probably some other reasons besides just those you mentioned about the other ethics perhaps of the company. I think one of them may just have to do that they were really the first company that had a published psychedelics related application. So most of the attention when it came was just directed to them as as people were surprised to see something filed on a, a psychedelic. I think another has to do with the fact that it's on psilocybin. And so Many of the patent applications on new chemical entities, on on different types of psychedelics, perhaps had Sasha Shulgin filed them on 2CB when he first invented it, or another psychedelic that had never been before known, those might have less less controversy. With psilocybin in particular, Mm -hmm. we know, of course, not only was it discovered, I suppose, by the West with, with Albert Hoffman and then patented, but it's been used in traditional and indigenous ceremonies and uses for mm-hmm. you know for centuries or, or millennia even and so those aspects also cause an, another layer of controversy we'll be talking more after we hear this ad from bbc radio 4 britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip i thought in that moment oh my god We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When people talk about what are the first substances that are going to be approved for treating uh, you know, different types of mental illness, people typically, typically talk about MDMA and the process that the organization MAPS is pursuing to get it approved by the FDA, hopefully later this year or next year. And the other one is the process being pursued by COMPASS to get psilocybin approved for treating, I think, uh, uh, intractable depression. And the argument by the Goldsmiths and others is that if we did not have a chance to patent this synthetic um, psilocybin, then we quite frankly could not raise the money to go through the entire approval process required to get psilocybin approved for treatment in the first place. So what's the response to their argument? Well, that is definitely the argument that is always used by pharmaceutical companies. And a big part of the controversy around Compass also is the fact that there were other companies also pursuing psilocybin like USONA for clinical development around the same time. 
And there are concerns that by filing these patent applications, Compass may preclude others from even continuing to do the work that they may have started beforehand and, and precluding other companies from their work in bringing psilocybin also to patients. And so I think we can also perhaps look at MAPS, as you mentioned, as alternative models to being able to bring a drug through the FDA approval process without patents. Although MAPS is also relying on something called data exclusivity. So data exclusivity is a regulatory benefit that when a company is first to obtain regulatory approval for a compound before anyone else on that compound, as MAPS would be with MDMA, that company is given five years or perhaps longer to be the exclusive company to sell that compound uh, before others can rely on its regulatory data to also seek approval. And so that does give MAPS mm -hmm. a period of time, which will be at least five years, to gain back the type of profits that are argued to be necessary to, to bring the drug through drug discovery. Although, of course, MAPS also relies on philanthropic funding to have gotten the drug to that point. Uh, to be able to get that data exclusivity. I've had Rick Doblin on. And so, you know, obviously we look at with the MAPS model where they set up, it's a nonprofit that sets up what's called a public benefit corporation in order to market MDMA and MDMA treatment once it's approved by the FDA with all the profits going back into MAPS and then MAPS pouring all those profits into further, you know, good causes, right? Psychedelics uh, uh, research and even into broader drug policy reform. I don't know if it's an optimal model, but we see see it as one of the best models out there. Conversely, we look at a thing like Compass, which is essentially a for-profit company, you know, uh, with obligations to its shareholders and fiduciary obligations there. Um, see, uh, you know, that, that even though it's going to be producing something that's valuable for humankind in terms of psilocybin being used to treat intractable depression, ultimately there's a bottom line profit thing. Now, there's another entity activist in all of this. There's an or a nonprofit called Freedom to Operate which was started by one of the major philanthropists in the psychedelics area, Carrie Turnbull. And Freedom to Operate was really set up to kind of prevent for-profit companies from taking advantage and using their finance and power to block others from getting involved. And ultimately, they spent a million dollars or more to challenge Compass's effort, and ultimately they failed. Compass prevailed. And I'm curious, did you think that Freedom to Operate was going to succeed um, and therefore surprised that they were not successful? Or why do you think Compass did prevail in the end? Well, so I wasn't terribly surprised. It's, I think, a result more of just the nature of patent law. Compass has quite narrow claims, even though they've been often described as really blocking the field, quite narrow claims on this specific polymorph. And they are drafted in such a way that it's quite difficult to have evidence to show that anything before their application was filed would be the same as what they're covering. Um, and so that's you know sort of just a trick of their patent drafting and a, and a trick of the way that the patent system itself operates. And so I don't think I was surprised at the, the outcome of the case, but you know I, I certainly do see the you know the concerns around the fact that there of course were other forms of synthetic psilocybin before, and there may be other forms of synthetic psilocybin that even if they had been 
produced before and in use before, they they may now infringe uh, Compass's claims, and and so mm-hmm. to the degree they they would be able to keep a competitor from being able to market their own psilocybin product, uh, I do see that that's a concern. So, Greg, let me circle around in it from a different angle on this in this case. You know, uh, I had uh, a while back uh, Leonard Picard uh, on Psychoactive. And as many of our listeners know, you know, he is regarded as one of the great underground chemists uh, and producers of LSD in the late 20th century who spent couple of decades in prison and fortunately got out. But when he speaks about the underground, the Brotherhood of Underground Chemists, and he and others creating, you know, their unique types of LSD, you know, were these things that potentially could have been patented uh, if these guys had wanted to go through that process, notwithstanding its illegality? Were they likely doing things that were sufficiently unique in terms of the way that they were synthesizing or, or making the LSD that would have been patentable? Well, that's that's a really good question. I mean, how unique they were, I guess I'd have to talk to Leonard to, to, to understand the, you know, the steps of the process that allegedly he was um, pursuing. And certainly, you know, I, I don't know enough about the, the chemistry to, to understand if it was something that was patentable. Um, in terms of whether the patent office might grant a patent on it, I think because of the fact that many of these processes were not published and were not included in any prior patents, the patent office generally, I think it's perhaps safe to say, could have granted patents on them. And so there is a bit of a disconnect there in terms of a patent to be granted has to be something that's novel and inventive, but the patent office to determine whether something is novel and inventive really just looks at prior patent literature and some of the peer-reviewed literature and, and some of the places that are more obvious to do research, but certainly mm-hmm. doesn't look to see what people are doing in the underground. And, and even today might not look at things that one might see as obvious, like looking on uh, Arrowhead or Blue Light or a forum. Um, looking on Reddit, even doing a Google search. Um. You, you know, actually, there, there's a case, I mean, you used a term of art in the patent law field, uh, prior art. And and I've oftentimes read about the infamous example of the DMT vape pen. Uh, and it sounds like that's a pretty good example of one of the major problems, not just in the psychedelics area, but the broader patent area, that we now have a federal patent office, which has existed for two centuries. I mean, patent law is in the U.S. Constitution, but where it's overstaffed and undertrained. So just tell our listeners a little bit more about that DMT uh, vape pen and why it stands out there as an example of what's wrong with the system. Yeah, I mean, that example I use generally just because it's, it's very easy to see how the patent office in this case just completely missed the prior art. And it's a really good example. Explain prior art. Okay. You're, you're using a yeah, term I'm using of it art. Again. So prior the prior art is a term of art, I suppose. The prior art just means anything that's public before the date that the patent application was filed. The main part of the patent examination process is just for the patent examiner to look at the application, and in particular, the claims of the application. So the claims are what the applicant writes to say, this is what I should own. And it compares those claims to what's in what's called the prior art, which just means everything that's public before the the patent was filed. So everything that was basically in the public domain. So for instance, with something like a vape pen, the patent applicant will draft a claim that will say a a device for vaporization that contains a, a chamber with a liquid for vaporization with a chemical compound like DMT. And then the patent examiner will 
take that claim and say, well, has anybody else ever done this or described this before? And then it will do a search and then it'll see if somebody has. If somebody has, then it'll reject the claim and then the applicant will come back and say, well, but they didn't do it quite like this or the way I'm doing it is a little bit narrower. Or they'll say, no, you're, you're misreading what the prior art says and actually it says something different. Um, and the patent examination process might take four or five years or longer with uh, three, four, five different times going back and forth in writing or sometimes with phone interviews between the examiner and the applicant to decide what's in the prior art and what's being claimed and to try to narrow the claim so it, nothing in the claim is covered or covers what's in the prior art. With this DMT vape pen, so the application covered basically DMT vape pens in their very broadest, it had figures which were pictures basically of you know what you would imagine a DMT vape pen looks like, same way a, you know a, a cannabis vape looks, like the kind you can buy at a dispensary. Um, and the patent examiner did a search and it looked at prior patent applications. And then it did a search in a particular database of chemical abstracts uh, from the just scientific literature for less than seven minutes because everything is on the record. So you can see the search terms they use. You can see how much time they spent. You can see the databases they looked in. Um, and they searched for a few terms like dimethyltryptamine, but they didn't search for DMT, the abbreviation, just the letters. They didn't search for vape pen. They didn't search for Google. And because of that, they, they missed the fact that the few months prior to the application being filed, there was a whole double blind article on DMT vape pens with many pictures that looked just like the pictures in the patent application. Uh, several years before that, there was an article by uh, somebody, Lester Black, who wrote uh, all about DMT vape pens and actually wrote about how he received some copies of DMT vape pens and describes them in the article. Um, Coincidentally, DMT vape pens that actually, I believe, came from uh, David Heldreth, who David Heldreth has talked about this. So I don't think I'm revealing anything controversial. Well, well actually, say, tell our audience who David Heldreth is. So David Heldreth is the, the CEO of Panacea Plant Sciences, who we mentioned, who was the sort of thorn in the DEA's side, who may have been part of the reason why the DEA had been thinking about these particular tryptamines when they decided to schedule them. Um, just a sort of small world coincidence in terms of getting back to the DMT vape pens. But in any event, because mm -hmm. the patent examiner didn't do a Google search, didn't search for vape pen or for DMT, they decided that this was a novel and inventive uh, invention, and they granted a, a patent on it. And the patent covers any DMT vape pen that you would see. And can that patent now be reversed? I mean, now that their, their mistakes are become so publicly known? It, it could be. Um, the, you know, the, the type of effort it might take, but it hasn't, it, it hasn't been, no. It hasn't. So somebody could do what freedom to operate did, as you mentioned, I don't think in this instance, it would cost a million dollars, but it is quite expensive. So it's over $50,000 just in, in filing fees to the patent office to challenge a patent after it's been granted. Um, and of course, mm -hmm. that's before you even pay for, for lawyers. In, in many instances, you probably have to pay for an expert to submit an affidavit um, and gather other factual information. So it's you know a bit prohibitive to be able I to see. challenge patents after they've been been granted. And so you know the DMT vape pen is you know it's not not necessarily the example of the most valuable patent that's out there, but it's a an easy example to see the way that the, the patent office can miss things. And, and this way of missing things because of, as you mentioned, that the patent examiners are typically 
overworked. Um, there's actually a, a bill pending right now by, by two senators, uh, Leahy and, and Tillis, to try to give patent examiners more time. Uh, they don't always spend as little as seven minutes, but they don't generally spend all that much time and, and not enough time because of the way they're rewarded uh, for just moving quickly through applications. And so this mm -hmm. means that many patents get granted and many of those granted patents can end up being asserted against companies who could have been doing the same thing they were doing even before the patent was filed. And, and so this is right. often kind of wasteful lit litigation that uh, is taking away from real innovation. One thing also, I mean, I know you worked in, uh, did a fair bit of work in the area of marijuana law and patents before you jumped more fully into the psychedelics area. And I saw that uh, one of the co-founder of Compass, George Goldsmith, was quoted as saying that when he got started, one of his models, his role models, was GW Pharmaceutical. You know, the UK firm, which I think was the first to get approval uh, and get a patent for its, um, you know, its, its version of medical marijuana. So can you say a little something? Why would, why would George Goldsmith, the head of Compass, have looked to GW Pharmaceutical? And, and what was the significance in the marijuana field? Um, well, it's, it's a good question. And actually, I should say, I think even my start to a large degree was because of what GW Pharma was doing in that a lot of my early clients in the cannabis days before I started working in psychedelics was because there were many companies that were looking at what GW was doing and, and seeing that was a way of, of raising money to, to try to bring other cannabinoid-based medicines to, to market through the FDA approval process. But what GW Pharma did was file um, many uh, patent applications. I think they have several hundred on purified forms of CBD and, and all the ways that CBD can be used in different types of, of treatment. GW has patents covering CBD for just about everything you can think of. Mm -hmm. So in terms of this industry now, I mean, look, obviously when, when the companies are engaged in trying to come up with truly novel products, right, new psychedelic substances in the way that Sasha was creating in his backyard lab, um, or if they're trying to create a new version of a, say, ayahuasca DMT where, without the noise or a shorter acting thing. I mean, there are some people who are out there just saying, hey, leave nature alone. We got what we need. We don't need new synthetic creations. But I think most people would say, no, you know, uh, individuals and companies should be free to try to create other novel psychedelic substances that maybe enhance the benefits of what nature has already produced or reduce the downsides or that can be more efficacious in various ways or more naturally tailored to treat certain conditions, right? But what we also know is that whether we're talking about the psychedelics area almost any other area, that the vast majority are not really about that. So I was reading recently, I don't know when exactly this piece was written, but it said that if you look at the top five public psychedelics companies by market cap, so Atai Life Sciences, which invests in a range of other companies, Compass, which we've talked about, MindMed, which you've mentioned, and also GH Research and Cybin, they've already submitted or own the rights to at least 157 patents with undoubtedly hundreds more in the pipeline. So what I'm curious there is that, I mean, is this all sort of, uh, you know, ultimately going to turn out, I mean, whatever value added happens here, I assume that most of these are not novel products. A lot of them are all forms of administration or, you know, synthesis that are not all that crucial to the advances. I assume that many of them, their market cap value is 
is based upon how likely they are to get a patent, and that's primarily what's you know driving them. So I'm wondering, are we all headed in the wrong direction on this thing, or is there any collaborative effort among the leaders, the for-profit leaders, um, together with say uh, Rick Doblin's Maps or or Kerry Turnbull's? Um, freedom to operate. So two-part question, is it all headed in the wrong direction? And is there any collaborative effort to try to write this? <laughs> well, yeah, those, those are really good questions. I mean, I, I, I maybe I'll start with the, the, the second because it's the easiest one because it's just the, the answer, at least, is, is I don't know. And perhaps I don't think so. I mean, I, I certainly think that there could be ways of collaborating, but just in terms of the way the system is set up and this is not something about just perhaps psychedelics but just about the you know the way our our kind of just corporate ecosystem and broader capitalist system is structured I, you know i don't i don't think these companies are necessarily going to pair with uh nonprofits and, and and try to work together i don't know that their investors would want that um maybe to answer one thing just that you didn't ask which was just about the number of patents i mean you're right to call the, the the very large number of them, but but I think part of this is just because with any even individual drug, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of patents filed on just like a, a single drug. So I don't think all of these will reflect necessarily novel compounds or novel ways of right. of really doing things. In terms of are we all pointed in the wrong direction? You know, I often go back. Um, to something I heard at Horizons, which was Joe Green at the business day saying that in Oregon, it costs five and a half million dollars to bring Measure 109 through. And I don't know what it costs to, to get Measure 110 through, but I, you know, I would imagine it's something on that same order. Now, if we think of all these companies, and by the way, for our listeners, 109 um, was the uh, was the initiative in Oregon to legalize psychedelic therapy, and the, the 110 is the one that was led by Drug Policy Alliance under my successors, together with Allies in Oregon, which is essentially a Portugal model: the all drug decrim and uh, siphoning money over to treatment for addiction. So yeah, go right. Ahead. No, and that, that, you're good to describe those. So yeah, so obviously, one a measure to get drug or psilocybin therapy legalized and one for decriminalization and both just in one state in Oregon. But but let's say even together, it was you know, something on the order of $10 million. And so calling this out to say at, at Horizons um, that you know the amount of money that's raised by all of these companies, so you know, GH Pharma, Atai, Compass, MindMed, the others, you know, many, many orders of magnitude more than $10, millions of $10 million. So are we pointing in the wrong direction Maybe the the question is, is putting all this money in drug development, in patent filings, is that going the wrong direction? I mean, what would all this money do if it was put into drug policy reform, into attempts to decriminalize drugs at the state level, into attempts to provide other legal aid, legalized, regulated um, ways to access psychedelics, like what Measure 109 is going to do in Oregon? Um, and so, you know, it's a question, I suppose, of just kind of priorities, um, but but it is something that I think, uh, depending on you know, what, what you see as, as being the sort of ideal orientation for a future psychedelics market, that perhaps we, we could be pointing away from it. 
I mean, because what I worry about also is I look, you know, another issue that I was involved in deeply was the one around overdose and making naloxone more available. And that, you know, naloxone was patented, uh, I don't know, 60 years or so by Jack Fishman and a few others. It was not a big profit thing. The patent ran out. But then you have one company that comes along and produces a nasal spray version and another one that produces an auto injector version. So they're making it a little easier for people to administer. And then they do everything possible to try to block others from coming into that. And the face of a massive overdose fatality crisis, you know, we have these products of naloxone, which is cost pennies or maybe dollars to make, but the products are being sold for, you know, you know, tens of dollars, if not hundreds of dollars. And so is that a risk in this psychedelics area, in the psychedelics therapy area? Are we going to see an issue where, in fact, some of the first companies to succeed in getting patents land up blocking significant innovations and reductions in cost in the way that we saw happen, for example, in the naloxone area? I mean, I definitely do see that that's a concern, and that really just is the way the patent system plays itself out. The benefit of the patent to the patent holder is that they can set prices however they want. That's the monopoly power that the, the patent gives them. And I think in just about every instance with pharmaceutical drugs, they tend to go up in price as the patent life goes along because the company has the ability to set those prices on their own. And, and so, I mean, to myself, this is something I'm very sensitive to because I, as a type 1 diabetic, I use insulin. And, and insulin, I think, like naloxone, very famously was, was patented many, many years ago. And actually, the, the patent was sold to a university for a dollar because the inventor wanted insulin to be broadly available. And people now, 100 years later, still might pay over $1,000 a month for it. Um, and so similarly, I think in the pharmaceutical space, companies know how to play these games with their, their patents to extend patent life and patent protection to find ways to patent tweaks to a molecule or delivery device or uh, a way that it's uh, being offered to continue to be able to raise prices and exclude competition. So I, I do see that once the psychedelics enter the pharmaceutical system as at large, they'll, they'll suffer from all the same structural failures of the, the broader patent system within the pharmaceutical industry. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents. If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations... Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow, 
to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. So when it comes to solutions, right, so there's the big picture one, right, which is about the overall patent system being broken, right? So the New York Times uh, earlier this year had a huge editorial called Save America's Patent System, you know, about how fundamentally broken it is and, and what needs to be done. And then there was a very good article, I think you've quoted in various places, by one of the smartest young journalists covering the psychedelics field, Shayla Love. And the title of her piece was Psychedelic Patents Are Broken Because the Patent System is Broken. So when we're talking about patent reform in in the U.S. is anything on the horizon, or are we just kind of doomed to keep living with this for years the way it is? Well, I hope we don't have to end here because I do, to some degree, think that we, in a sense, are doomed at least with the patent system we have, especially when it comes to the pharmaceutical space, because the pharmaceutical lobby is really one of the strongest, and the pharmaceutical lobby has been doing all it can to keep the, the patent system working in its favor, and so. I think there certainly are efforts, and I will keep my fingers crossed that these efforts can be successful, both in terms of sort of at the individual level, like with what Leahy and Tillis are doing, making sure individual patents are, are, are granted fairly and in view of all the proper prior art. Um, I think broadly that the, the patent system itself, there are things that are being worked out through other reform bills that have been introduced in I think there's still a chance there can be something that might raise the standards so that pharmaceutical innovation actually occurs. I mean, despite the fact that hundreds of pharmaceutical patents are granted every year, it's a, or on every drug even, it's a, a very small number of them that actually provide any real innovation in terms of patient outcomes and in terms of clinical benefits. 
Um, I mean, I think even Purdue Pharma, right, effectively extended the the patent or got a new one on its OxyContin just by a slight reformulation and effective interactions with FDA. And I think what they were doing was fairly typical, right? You have a kind of medication which may be a breakthrough or a semi-breakthrough, but then just by tinkering it with it, they just keep extending the protections, the patent protections, keeping the costs up, blocking generics. And, uh, and, and yet, you know, for all the politicians saying we need to fix this, um, not much is happening. I think that's right. And I mean, it's, it's wrapped up inside, you know, broader reform too, to just the, the healthcare system and the way insurance covers drugs and, and healthcare more broadly. And, and so it, it is in terms of a, a structure to look out at from within the, the, the psychedelic space, it's something that is pretty daunting to, to think that the, the ethos of the psychedelic space somehow can be used as a, as a model to reimagine the pharmaceutical patent system at large. But I think there are ways, mm-hmm. too, that, that companies within the psychedelic space can choose to interact with the patent system a little bit differently. And there have been some examples of some companies who have made some attempts to do that. And I think it certainly is something that's on people's minds in the psychedelic space. And so I think just the fact that so many people are talking about psychedelics patents and, and see them as a, as a problem means that Companies will, to the extent they have, uh, you know, cons- consumers of their of their products concerned with what they're doing, perhaps can be held to a higher standard. Well, you know, I see. I mean, if you look at the proactive efforts, I mean, we've discussed freedom to operate, or I carry Turnbull's operation, which tried to block Compass. But, you know, there's also this thing called Porta Sophia, mm-hmm. right, which tries to address the issue with prior art and to try to make, to sort of create a database of all the prior art, you know, the pre existing, you know, types of uses of these drugs so that people can't falsely make claims for patents. And there's, a, I think, your, your, your thing called psychedelicalpha.com. Um, which provides, you know, a pretty good listing of, of all this. So just tell, tell us a little more about what's going on with your thing and, and Porta Sophia, their significance. And are those the sorts of ideas that come that are also happening in other areas of non, you know, psychoactive drug areas? Maybe the, the place to start with, with Psychedelic Alpha is actually to sort of go back to the origin stories of it. Um, I actually was volunteering at a at a maps info table at a at a conference that just coincidentally happened to be the the weekend after an article by Olivia Goldhill published on Compass's first patent. It hadn't yet published, but they had um, told people about its filing and that it was on psilocybin. And this article was really the first to kind of raise the outrage. And because I mentioned to everyone there that I was a patent lawyer, I, I spent basically the weekend talking about uh, psilocybin patents and how it could be even possible to file a patent on psilocybin. And after I, you know, left the conference that weekend and went home, I started keeping track of a table of uh, patents on psilocybin in particular. At which point there were maybe a dozen and probably not very many more, <laughs> including the ones that Albert Hoffman had filed at Sandoz. Since then, of course, now there are are many hundreds. And because patent applications aren't published until 18 months after they're filed. There, there's probably even uh, twice or three times as many now, but most of them still just secret. That is not only something that's in the in the psychedelic space. I mean, part of the reason I decided it would be worthwhile publishing it on Psychedelic Alpha was because it was you know, a good way of making people aware of the types of applications that were out there and, and sort of starting a conversation around them. But there's an organization called IMAC, 
the Initiative for Medicines Access and Knowledge, which I, I use their statistics a lot. I-M-A-K, right? A-K.org, which I think was an important source for that New York Times editorial and has been taking on some of these issues in a broader way. So, yeah, Very much so, yes. And, and they've been sort of counting and cataloging the, the number of applications that have been filed on of other pharmaceuticals just in terms of seeing the impact that they have on particular pharmaceutical drugs. And so to some degree, that was, uh, I'd say, somewhat of an inspiration, just seeing that uh, a conversation can be started around individual compounds through looking at the, the types of applications that are filed on them and what that might mean for the, the price of somebody using that, that compound as part of a medicine. Um, I see. And I think even with IMAC, are they engaging in some ways in the psychedelics area or they are familiar with it? Are you in contact with them? Well, yeah. So their co-founder, Preeti Christel, has um, actually been on a panel with me with Shakruna. Um, speaking of Shayla Love, who I think um, really is uh, the the best writer on, on pharmaceutical um, or on psychedelic patents uh, in this space and, and certainly everyone should read what she's written about this. Um, she and um, actually Josh Hardman and, and myself and Preeti Christel uh, proposed a panel at South by Southwest this coming year. So we hope we can all speak together. So we, we have, of course, also been speaking a little bit together in general and see that we're uh, aligned in terms of what we hope to see for you know, the psychedelic space is, is very similar to the, the types of reforms that IMAC for, for decades now has argued are necessary in the, the broader uh, medicine space. And, and, and Preeti had done you know, really great work arguing around access to AIDS medications and and other drugs for, for many years, even before she started IMAC, and has, has long been a, an advocate for um, more equitable access to, to pharmaceuticals. And so definitely saw both that as a resource, but also as an inspiration for sort of the, the ways it would be uh, useful to sort of orient um, the ethics in the, in the psychedelic space itself. So, Graham, I, yeah, I normally ask this at the beginning, but uh, how did you I, get into it? I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about growing up in the West Coast with hippie parents and getting involved at a young age on, uh, you know, you, I think you said you'd been involved with the Prop 215, the Medical Marijuana Initiative 25 years ago, but just tell our audience a little more about your evolution uh, into becoming one of the leading patent lawyers working in this area. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe going back to that um, Prop 215 is sort of how I draw my origin story. Although I suppose maybe the the fortune of growing up in in Oakland too. I mean, I, so I do mention you know my my mom went to Berkeley in the 60s, and um, my dad did have his share of long hair. Although I don't think they were either the two of them that much into psychedelics. And so I you know grew up with Be Here Now sort of as a coffee table book, and you know Carlos Castaneda and other books on the you know the bookshelves that sort of piqued my interest and. So I was kind of a stoner in high school, and when Prop 215 was on the ballot, actually one of the first things I did was when I had my driver's license go uh, collect signatures for the ballot uh, uh, in, front, in front of a couple of grocery stores. And in college, fairly early, I had my first psychedelic experiences, and I had so much inspiration from those that I changed my major to uh, neuroscience to try to both learn a little bit more about how it had those impacts on my, on my consciousness, how chemicals like that could uh, have such a profound role in 
uh, shifting the way that I saw myself and saw the world. Um, and actually, for a time in college, thought that perhaps I could study a some sort of psychopharmacology or I speaking of PCAL and TCAL, you know, I, I bought, bought those books um, and sort of saw Sasha, I suppose, as, as something of a um, inspiration. And you know, I received some encouragement from others that law school might be a good way if I was interested in, in drug policy. And so somewhat naively, I suppose, in retrospect, because thinking I could work in cognitive liberty or, or something like drug policy with law school loans, um, it did end up at law school, but uh, realized that the, the science degree to, to pay off my loans was best used uh, in the, the patent space, which was you know hiring at good salaries and paying bonuses. And even though I had written my mm-hmm. law school term paper actually on the way that generics are kept off the market by aggressive patent policies and um, how drugs are, are kept expensive by the sort of abuse of the patent laws, uh, spent the first sort of half decade of my career at a law firm in New York, working with branded drug companies to actually keep uh, generic drugs off the market for longer. Um, and so to some degree, I think I'm paying off that karma a little bit now. Well, I'm curious how you balance that now, right? And because obviously, you know, many of your clients are going to be for-profit companies. And are when you're talking with them or they want to hire you, retain you, or if you're already working for them, are are there lines where you say, look, this is something I cannot make that argument here? Or, or do you turn down clients who want you to do things that you don't feel are ethically right? I mean, because you're obviously out there as a forceful voice in terms of it trying to advocate for good policies in this area. You serve you as an advisor to Chakruna, you know, Bail Abati's organization doing a lot of good work, but you're also, you know, a for-profit, I mean, you were an attorney with clients. So how do you balance that in your in your professional life? Yeah, that I think is really the best, the be- kind of like the best question. And I think that is the attention that I find myself trying to navigate and spend a lot of my own time really thinking about. I'm fortunate, I think, that when I started my own firm to sort of go back a little bit before maybe answering the question. When I started Calix Law in 2016, actually that tension was sort of part of the reason for even starting it. I, I had worked for a long time on a case against Monsanto with their genetically modified crops. Um, and I had obviously been very interested in cannabis and that was part of the reason for wanting to enter the cannabis space as a patent lawyer. And because of my interest in it, I had a number of friends who were trying to go from the legacy market into the sort of adult use market at the turn of 2015, 2016. And sort of my thesis for starting my firm was that there were ways for smaller inventors to get involved with the patent system and to also use the patent system to keep off a company like a Monsanto or a Philip Morris from entering the the cannabis space and sort of taking it over and dominating it. And so that sort of tension between seeing patents as ways of sort of giving a leg up to smaller independent uh, inventors, but also as a way of keeping a market from being dominated by aggressive monopolists um, is sort of the kind of premise that I even started my firm with. And so taking that of thinking through to the psychedelic space, uh, I think that was part of the kind of fortune that let me see that there were these issues 
around psilocybin patenting, for instance, um, perhaps a bit earlier than you know maybe some others did. And so I think I'm I'm fortunate for having spent some time talking about those controversies that I actually do get presented with opportunities to to try to find ways to to navigate them um, from clients who who see patents as being necessary to raise money. I have some clients who mm-hmm. tried to go without patents and, and just pursue their, their work uh, sort of in the open, put things in the public domain, and, and sometimes found that they either couldn't raise money or, in one instance, another company took an article that they had published and filed patents covering exactly what it was that they had described. Um, and so saw a concern that, like, well, well, if we don't file a patent for it, like, what if somebody else does? And so um, I, I don't know that I've perhaps had to turn down clients for wanting to unethically use the patent system. And maybe I've just had the fortune of, because I've been to some degree, a, kind of a voice for, for balance in the patent system. Okay, so la- last question here. One of the issues that's been out there more and more and I know that uh, Cody Swiss River Sticks Foundation is making this issue and others have, is what is owed to indigenous peoples when the psychedelic products that, you know, emerged from their indigenous uses start becoming commercialized. And so, you know, I mean, when we look at uh, mescaline and peyote, when we look at iboga coming from Gabon and the surrounding areas in West Africa, I mean, these came so much out of indigenous uses, uh, mescaline. Um, And so it's a question, what is owed and exactly to whom? And then there's the broadening of the issue. So, for example, when it comes to psilocybin, mushrooms are growing, you know, they grow all around the world. And on the one hand, you hear the claim, well, but for Maria Sabina educating Gordon Wasson, you know, 60, 70 years ago, you know, we wouldn't have all these people aware of psilocybin, uh, you know, in other parts of the world. But then I've, I think it's Paul Stamets who will say, well, hold on a second. Psilocybin has mm. been actually used around the world in different ways for a long time. So let's not extend this indigenous obligation issue to psilocybin. And then, of course, is MDMA, which is a 20th century synthetic creation um, is there anything owed from something like MDMA uh, to indigenous people? So what's your view on, on what is the proper obligations and, and, and to the extent there are obligations, how those should be addressed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, MDMA, even though um, I think comes from Sasha's tinkering, so to speak, with mescaline. So perhaps even there you could draw some degree of a uh-huh. through line okay. back to try to find some way to provide reciprocity. I mean, if we speak in terms of legal obligations, legally there really are none uh, in the sense that there are some treaties, there is something called the Nagoya Protocol, but it hasn't been adopted by the US, ratified by the US. And so there's basically just the, the patent law, which prevents companies from patenting something that are that's done by somebody else, but it, there's certainly no mechanism for reciprocity that's in the law, unfortunately. So it really is up to, to us, I suppose, to decide what companies are owed and to hold companies to account for that. In terms of my own views, I mean, I, I think this all really comes down to just the, the, the broader controversy, too, around patents, which is where the value is derived from and, and how much of that value gets extracted toward 
the the owner of a patent or the the owner of a group of patents and we can look at not just psilocybin but sort of any invention and i think any invention to some degree uh i think even the uh as the saying goes you know we stand on the shoulders of, of giants like nothing comes sui generis and even though our patent system is sort of based on this ideal of this kind of lone inventor genius working alone at his workbench who sort of has this eureka moment where he comes up with something that's never been done before and gets a patent on it and is entitled to all the monopoly profits on that for the next two decades. Nothing is quite like that. And so how do we really find a way to give some calculation to what is owed and you know where does the value derive from um in terms of reciprocity for for psychedelics i mean i i certainly think that it's important to recognize that you know many psychedelics come from these lineages where that whether they're just from underground use like mdma dating back to the 70s and 80s whether they're from further back than that dating back to Maria Sabina or, or earlier, whether they're dating back to, you know, potentially millennia of use. Um, I think having the conversation that, that people are having, um, you know, the question you're asking me, um, not to necessarily dodge it, but I, I think that's what's important. And I think it's, you know, it's, even though I know you asked my personal views, I mean, I think it's an important decision for people to be making as the psychedelic space starts to mature more in terms of trying to understand what the companies who make all the profits uh, should be Mm -hmm. responsible for. And I'm here again optimistic because I see that there are many already who have found ways to try to give some degree of reciprocity. Um, There are companies who have given some portion of their profits or, or said that they've dedicated some portion of their profits, have given some of their equity, have uh, provided other means of reciprocity. At the same time, I've also spoken to some uh, indigenous people who feel like reciprocity, even as a term, is perhaps not used correctly in the sense that it's only reciprocity if somebody accepts what you're giving to them. And, and so just for a company to say, well, I'm going to give 10% back to the indigenous, like that not only is perhaps not enough, but it's maybe even uh, a form of, I don't know, some people have called it tie-dye washing or greenwashing, but sort of, uh, I guess, av- avoiding a, a greater responsibility, which is perhaps what like the Nagoya protocol I mentioned requires, which is actually mm-hmm. consulting with the groups from which you're taking the the knowledge or the wisdom and before doing something that would give you the profits that you would just give back, actually consulting, getting an informed consent and, and having a process at the beginning to really share those those benefits. So last question, Graham, do you have a favorite psychedelic? And the part two of that question is, can you think of any moments where your a psychedelic experience actually proves specifically helpful in addressing um, professional issues or questions that you were thinking through. Um, well, so my favorite psychedelic is mushrooms. Um, 
just just because I love the I guess the the fact that they're just so tangible and they're very accessible and that you can grow them quite easily yourself. You can find them places often when you're not even expecting to. Um, I, I love just mushrooms in general, and I've my my fiance and I are I think our our favorite thing to do together is go mushroom foraging. Um, not usually for for psychedelic mushrooms, but just generally. Um, and so uh, you know I love the fact that they're just a you know a natural um, thing, and they're they're also very well they're a little bit variable, but they're much easier to dose than than other things since you can see exactly what it is you're you're getting. In terms of professional impacts. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know that I actually have in terms of like creativity or the sort of stories you hear about people like um, Carrie Mullis or, you know, or somebody who's had a sort of eureka moment that's been perhaps influenced by the use of psychedelics. Um, I think maybe it's because the last thing I generally want to think about when I'm on psychedelics is anything to have to do with patents or work. So maybe I should try and see if I can have some creativity on them. I mean, I, I definitely credit them with a lot of change in sort of personal um, attributes sort of to my life. I mean, I, I, I had a long time where I was um, somebody who didn't really have a healthy relationship with alcohol. And I, I, I found that I um, had an experience with psilocybin mushrooms actually that reframed the way I was viewing my relationship with alcohol and actually was... The sort of last time after that that I have had any kind of uh, abuse of alcohol um, and other things that have had really personal meaning. But no, I think I'm going to have to find a opportunity maybe to um, <laughs> go on psychedelics okay. to think okay. about some of these patent issues. What sort of reciprocity we owe, or, or, or some of the things you asked me that I didn't have very good answers for, and, and, uh -huh. and maybe I'll find them. Okay, well, Graham, listen, thank you ever so much, both for the work you're doing and for the taking the time to speak with me and our psychoactive audience. Thank you, Ethan. No, the, the privilege was entirely mine, um, and I'm, I'm so thankful for being asked to join you in the conversation. I hope I see you again in uh, Horizons or, or another conference, so I hope to see you. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Professor Edward Slingerland, author of the book Drunk, who argues that the consumption of alcohol 
has been essential to the evolution of human civilization. You know, I look at evidence from other parts of the world that wherever you look, it seems like the first cultivated plants were chosen for their psychoactive properties, not for nutrition. And so that's a sense in which, you know, quite literally, the desire to to get intoxicated gave rise to civilization. It's what caused hunter-gatherers to settle down in the first place. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.